From WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH Radio Boston, this is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. A major report from the National Academy of Sciences last year concluded that sexual abuse and harassment is pervasive in academia, with rates second only to the military. The report went on to say that sexual misconduct should be treated with the same seriousness as scientific misconduct. Now, nearly two dozen scientists have come together to echo that call and recommend specific actions that research and funding organizations could, and the authors say should, take to prevent and punish sexual misconduct. Joyce Wong is a co-author of that new Call to Action published in the journal Science. She's a professor of biomedical engineering and materials science and engineering at Boston University. Joyce, welcome to Living Lab Radio. Thank you. How did this group that you're a part of now, this uh, 20-odd scientists, come together, and, and how did this new report come about? So it came together with Jason Scheltzer and Carol Greider, who were the organizers of the conference just about a year ago at Cold Spring Harbor, and they invited um, the group together to basically talk in response to, um, in part, the report that you just referred to from the National Academies. And it, the goal was was to kind of brainstorm together and come up with solutions. And so um, the report came as a result of the um, two or three days of discussion between everybody. And so they did a wonderful job in organizing and bringing everyone together from not just from academia, but from industry, from um, federal funding agencies, and also um, uh, foundations as well. And one of the the major take-homes is this recommendation that sexual misconduct should be treated the same way that scientific misconduct is. What does that mean in concrete terms? In concrete terms, so, so for example, if you have scientific misconduct, there are some clear rules that have been around for quite a while where your funding could be at jeopardy. And so, for example, even like plagiarism, scientific plagiarism, those are well known. We thought that the sexual misconduct should be at that level, right? Um, similar to, in fact, even laboratory safety is an issue that you know can have consequences. So we said that at, at the minimum, it should be at least at the level as, as scientific misconduct and safety. Well, and and you suggest some very specific actions, and you say that investigators should be required to disclose to potential funders uh, any harassment findings or settlements, uh, and you, you actually recommend two very specific questions that every applicant for grant funding should be forced to, to answer. What are those two questions? So number one is, that have you been found responsible? for professional misconduct, research misconduct, or gender-based harassment any time in the past 10 years. And the second one is if you've been involved in a settlement regarding an allegation of professional misconduct, research misconduct, or gender-based harassment in the past 10 years. And, and I should just mention to follow up on that, that it's not just our recommendation. There's actually some funding agencies already that are asking for this. So, for example, National Science Foundation made their report before the National Academy's report came out. So I should mention that, you know, that it's in line with what some funding agencies are asking for already. So how would the repercussions potentially be different? I mean, just asking about that doesn't necessarily mean that there is an action that follows that, even if the funding agency gets an answer of, yes, I've, I've been accused of sexual misconduct in the past 10 years. I mean, what are you suggesting should actually be the, the follow-up to that? So, for example, in the um, a lot of the funding agencies, you have a checklist that you have to check off and say. So it's more, I would say, 
on the the compliance check to say like if you knowingly put something wrong, right, then you then you are at jeopardy. Then you can say that they knowingly checked the wrong box, right, mm-hmm. when they when they knew something happened, right? That that would be more the issue. I mean, is the idea that funding agencies would then be looking at that and say, oh, this person ha- has, in the case of the first question, been found guilty of sexual misconduct, they are ineligible for funding? That that would be correct that for that particular investigator. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you, you also suggest that there should be institutional and government offices set up to address claims of sexual misconduct. And I wonder, again, how different is that from the current system? What would happen today if you know someone were to report or make an allegation of sexual misconduct in a lab, say, at Boston University, where you are? Yeah, so currently how, how um, a lot of the reporting is is that it's within um, kind of the institutions because of, I believe, this is where you would have to check with the lawyers for, for specifics, but I believe because of non-disclosure agreements, it, it's not necessarily always disclosed, right? So hmm. um, so that, that would be how, how it would be different. And so by doing it kind of at the, um, at the federal level of federal funding, right, that kind of takes it out of the institution. Right. Joyce Wong, I mean, we have seen some progress in these sorts of directions in the past year and a half or so since that National Academies report came out. We've seen some professional societies saying uh, we will not grant awards and and honors to people who have been found guilty of sexual misconduct, actually perhaps going back through past uh, awards and recognitions and, and revoking those if people have been found guilty of sexual misconduct. Why do you feel that this call for action is is particularly necessary? Do you not see progress already moving in this way? No, I think there is progress that's going on, but I, we feel that that um, well, I guess the best way to describe this is is that one of the issues that hit me the most when I went to this meeting about a year ago is that I um, so I've been working a lot in this area of advocacy for women in STEM for quite a while at, at Boston University, and so it it I didn't. S- I guess, understand the gravity of how many women were actually being forced out for some, for, for these reasons, gender harassment, sexual harassment. And so for me, any kind of means that we were excluding people from STEM was just, just a tragedy and just, and actually it, it hurts our um, country from a um, strategic point of view. So the point is, is that you could say, sure, there there's some efforts that are being done, but we really wanted to, as a group, as a whole, we wanted to draw attention to this and then basically use our, our voice to, to basically bring um, more attention to this. But I completely agree with you. The scientific societies have been doing a tremendous amount. The National Academies have started something called the Action Collaborative, which a lot of different um, universities have bought into and are participating in, in in trying to do best practices. So there is definitely work that's being done and more work that needs to be done. We just wanted to bring kind of specific actionable items that you referred to, some of them. You mentioned distributed mentoring, having one more than one uh, mentor for young scientists, and, and also, you know, the, the fact that gender discrimination and harassment, sexual harassment, can force people out of science. And one interesting thing that you tackle is the idea that 
uh, reporting sexual misconduct in academia should be subject to the same kinds of whistleblower protections, essentially, that those who report scientific misconduct are. Again, building on that kind of parallel in the system that's already in place. Why do you think that is in particular necessary? Oh, that's absolutely important, the whistleblower, because you you want to pr- protect against retaliation. And so, in fact, that's probably the reason why so few people actually come forward. So a lot of times people will say, oh, this doesn't happen in my institution. I've never heard of it. No, one, no one's told me about it. But what happens is if you, if you become a trusted ally, you'd be surprised at how many people start to come up to you and tell you what, what problems they have. So it's really critical to make sure that there is a safe space for, for an, anyone who's undergoing bullying or harassment in any means, right, to be able to speak in a way where they are, that there won't be any retaliation against them. Because a lot of times, so for example, you've talked a lot about the harasser. A, a lot of times I like to shift the discussion to the victim, right? So a lot of times we don't think about how can we actually make reparations or, or, or help the victim because really we're talking about hundreds. I mean, I don't even know the number, the thousands or how many tens of thousands of people who have been shut out of science for this reason. What about them? So, so to me, I, I think it's really important to make sure that we keep in place this the safe space where you have whistleblowers that they, they are safe from retaliation. Absolutely. Well, and that's perhaps, of course, important in any societal or work setting, but there's a a particular, I guess, danger in the scientific setting because the career of of a young scientist is so tied in many cases to one mentor, to one supervisor in graduate school, the head of one lab as a young researcher. Uh, And so this suggestion of distributed mentorship, on one hand, seems very logical. On the other hand, is is kind of radical uh, within the academic science setting. What kind of response have you gotten to that idea? Well, I would say it's not as radical as you would think. There's quite a few scientists now, that trainees, that are actually co-mentored. And so what I mean by that is they may have uh, mentors, you know, two different faculty mentors or, or scientific mentors. And certainly they have thesis committee members, too. So the kinds of words people are using are transdisciplinary, where you have very complex problems that we're facing. The idea is to bring together disciplines that normally don't talk to each other. So that, by definition, you're wanting to train students that have multidisciplinary or these transdisciplinary training. And so that actually, to me, it's not as radical as you would think. Right. And that means you're getting good multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary science, but it also means that if a graduate student is harassed by one mentor, reports that that mentor loses their funding, that graduate student's career doesn't also fall apart as a result of that. Absolutely. And then I would say to that end also, this is where some of the funding agencies and also foundations come into play because there are a lot of fellowships that are given to graduate students and postdocs to postdoctoral trainees where they have their own funding. So actually some universities have this as well. And so that also kind of diffuses or mitigates the the problem as well. Well, Joyce Wong, you and your co-authors on this this new paper also tackle the perhaps subtler issue of gender bias. What are some of your recommendations for how to counteract the impacts of gender bias in science? 
So first of all, it's important to recognize that there is indeed gender bias. And so uh, there's many, many reports in the literature. I can just point to at least one of them for you. So one is by Joe Handelsman. It's a, a paper in PNAS a number of years ago where she actually, she and her team, they sent out CVs or the resumes, identical resumes, but the names were male and female. So they were sent to male and female um, heads of labs, and they had to, to rate them on competency and, and um, among other things, but then also their salary. And so what was interesting is that they, on every level, the, the women were rated lower, and the salary was, it was even increasingly you know, worse. And then another group, a number of years after that, did the same thing for race and ethnicity and found it was even worse if you had like a, an ethnic-sounding name. So first of all, the, the, to answer your first question, the, um, the bias definitely exists. And what to do about it is you, first of all, just make people aware that they're doing it. And right. then, um, so another example is that recommendation letters. It's very well known that people tend to write different recommendation letters for women. They say, oh, they're, they're very nice. They're team player, right? And, and they're not using as, as aggressive words on say, oh, they're the best in something. And so there, so one actual, I think there's a gender bias calculator that will actually um, <laughs> tell you and rate you on that. There's these other places like implicit.harvard.edu. They actually have a test that you can do yourself. So part of it, I think, is just training and just having you recognize that you are doing this kind of bias because then you can kind of self-correct. Because I know Many, many studies have tried to do um, different efforts, but they say the best is just to, to keep um, constantly reminding you that you are, everyone has our own biases, we're all human, right? And so the question is, is just to make sure that you're aware of your biases and then try to then to mitigate them. Hmm. That's Joyce Wong of Boston University. She's co-author on a new call to action regarding sexual misconduct and gender bias in science published in the journal Science. Joyce, thank you. Thank you very much. Up next, a mechanical engineer takes on some of the mysteries of pregnancy. Living Lab Radio continues after a short break. Welcome back to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. Pregnancy. It happens to four out of five American women at least once in their lives. And as many women can attest, things often happen during pregnancy that doctors don't know much about. Let's start with basics. How does the uterus go from holding about two teaspoons to 21 cups of fluid plus a baby? Does it stretch? Does it grow? Those are the kind of questions that my next guest is trying to answer. Kristen Myers is Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Columbia University. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. What came first for you, the interest in the science of pregnancy or the interest in mechanical engineering? Oh, it was the interest in mechanical engineering. Uh, I'm a Michigander. I grew up in suburban Detroit, and I was surrounded by the automotive industry, um, and I just love to think about how things works work. I'm, I'm a real sort of gearhead, if you will. Um, and so I went to engineering school thinking I was going to be an automotive engineer. Hmm. Okay, so how did you get from automotive engineer to studying pregnancy? <laughs> um, well, I was working internships at the local automotive companies. I was at General Motors. Um, and then I started doing uh, like undergraduate research opportunities for a professor of mine who studies the mechanical property of, of rubber material. So it doesn't sound so fascinating. 
But interesting things happen to rubber when it heats up. So when it heats up, it can degrade and change its mechanical properties or how stiff or springy it is. Um, and so in this research, I just found it fascinating that you can use mathematical equations to describe this process of the material remodeling and softening. And with my advisor at University of Michigan, you know, we would have these discussions, these sort of like academic discussions in his office, and we just talk about how you know, we can use the same set of mathematical equations perhaps to talk about how biological tissues remodel themselves to perform physiologic functions. Um, and then I met a woman, a professor at MIT named Simona Socrates, and she was working on pregnancy, and I said, I have to do this. I have to do this. Hmm. So within pregnancy in particular, you have focused in largely on the cervix, which it may sound like worlds apart from rubber that heats up and softens to the cervix. But in fact, there's some similarity with what happens with the cervix during pregnancy, right? Yeah. So we started our research focusing on the cervix because the cervix is an organ that the physician can examine during your clinical exam. So they look at the cervix, they push on it to see how soft it is with their finger. Uh, They image it in the ultrasound and they look to see how long and how healthy your cervix is. So there's a lot of clinical focus on the cervix and how it stays shut. Um, So, you know, when we started this project at MIT, you know, one of the most basic structural questions you can ask, you're like, okay, uh, then what's its material stiffness? What's its springiness? So we started conducting what we call mechanical tests on cervical tissue, on tissues that were being um, women who had to have hysterectomies. You know, we were taking that tissue from the operating room. Um, You know, the patients consented. And these were tissues that were going to be either saved or discarded. So we thought it was a good opportunity to collect some tissue. And we started performing mechanical tests like we would a traditional material like rubber or steel, et cetera. And there are similarities. The similarities in the material are that it can be pretty stretchy. If you just look at, you know, sort of examine your skin or the end of your, like, end of your nose, you know, our biological tissues are sort of soft and squishy, if you will. We think that the cervix remodels by the sort of turnover of its material or turnover of its biochemical contents to produce a tissue that is very, very, very soft. Because you imagine at the time of delivery, the cervix has to open up and allow the baby to pass, you know, and you don't want to hurt the mom and you don't want to hurt the baby. So these tissues have to be incredibly soft. So does that mean that essentially at a a biochemical level, it's almost like you've got cervix one and cervix two, like they're, they're in the same place, but almost completely different tissues? Yeah, I mean, there is a turnover of material, a turnover of mass, if you will. Um, we learn a lot from animal studies um, because, uh, as you can imagine, it's you, you don't want to, uh, you know, test tissues that are in the human during pregnancy. It's a very difficult, protected time. Of course. Um, and, I, you know, I'm a woman myself. I'm a mom. I'm, you know, definitely aware of things, <laughs> you know, a research patient will and will not do. And we're very cognizant of that. Um, So we use animal models to understand how the reproductive tract in general, how the reproductive tract needs to change during the pregnancy process. You know, things have to soften up. You know, you've got uh, the, you know, the fetus is growing. So the mother's body has to accommodate that growth. And you don't want these tissues to be so stiff that during this growth process that these tissues are breaking. So Mm -hmm. the body has to sort of 
alter itself so it has this compliance and this give so that, you know, you can have a growing fetus and baby that's kicking and it's not going to hurt the mom, it's not going to rip the tissues, etc. So these are the types of things that we're thinking about when we say remodeling. There's a lot of remodeling that's going on. I'm curious, you know, you said that you do sometimes work with human tissues, with cervix tissue that has come from women who've had to have a hysterectomy. And of course, that could be a very stressful time in that woman's life. And at the same time, I can imagine a lot of women feeling like this is research they would really want to contribute to. Have you ever spoken with or met any of the women who have contributed to their to your studies? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the great things about being at Columbia is that the engineering school, my lab is right across the street from the medical center. And to get this type of research done, we have to collaborate and be very present with the OBs that are treating these patients. I don't ever want to be an engineer that sort of sits in my lab and thinks up these problems and, you know, makes computer models. I mean, actually being with the patients and sitting in the sonography room with the physicians, with the sonographer, with the patients, and sort of having a dialogue of why this work is important is really helpful. So me and my students are are always there and always present. And, you know, the the women that sign up for our, our research studies, they always ask me, they're like, wow, this is so cool. Like, why hasn't this been done before? Like, you know, I'm really excited to sort of be along with the process. Um, and we're so, so grateful for our research patients. So it's really great to have a dialogue back and forth and, you know, to tell the patient, like, you know, hey, like, I actually designed this protocol, you know, when I was pregnant because I was going through the clinical workflow. Mm-hmm. I was showing up to, like, all my clinical visits and understanding when and where the clinicians are, you know, looking at your body, trying to understand your health, the baby's health, et cetera. So it's really critical that we're there alongside the patient and the physician. In your work studying the mechanical properties of the cervix and how they change during pregnancy, what have you learned about how different the cervix is to begin with or how differently those changes progress in the cases where you end up with uh, preterm birth? Uh, That question you asked is, if you will, like, that is like the holy grail of what we're trying to understand. We have a hypothesis, and I haven't proven or validated this hypothesis with a a powered clinical study, but we hope to do something like this. But our hypothesis is telling us, based on initial data sets, that a very soft cervix early on in your pregnancy will place you at a higher risk for preterm birth. That, I mean, that, that honestly sounds just quite logical. And like many of your research patients, it seems kind of astounding to me that that observation, that link has not been previously known, and, and that you still are saying that that, that, that causal relationship is, is not there yet. We don't have the evidence for that yet. We don't have the evidence. And also, it's difficult. How do you measure the stiffness of the cervix early on in one's pregnancy? We don't have the tools to do that. Um, so, you know, part of our research is to develop the tools to assess that. Now, cervical stiffness is just one parameter, In a biological system that is complicated as pregnancy is, we also believe that it's it's more than stiffness as well. We feel that you can have a soft cervix, but let's say you have a very sort of wide cervix and that your fetal membranes are really well to here to the wall, you can be okay with a soft cervix. The real complications come when you sort of have um, multiple complicated factors. So if you have a 
uh, a short cervix that is very, very soft, and somehow your fetal membranes have become unstuck from the uterine wall, then that, like, that's like the perfect storm of a bad mechanical environment. So we think it's a combination. We definitely think it starts with how stiff or how soft your cervix is. Then we think, okay, now let's go to the size and shape and volume of your cervix. So the less volume you have there will definitely matter. So measuring volume you can do with an ultrasound. You can look at cervical length and cervical diameter. And then also the placement of the fetal membranes in relationship to the cervix is going to matter. So our overall hypothesis, we would like to look at all three of those factors and then come up with a better uh, risk stratification for women for preterm birth. But, you know, again, it's, it's figuring out the tools to quantify those for a set of patients. That's also an engineering challenge that we're trying to overcome. That's Kristen Myers. She's an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Columbia University studying the science of pregnancy. Kristen, thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. When it's cold outside, we bundle up and head inside if we can. Some of us wish we could sleep the winter away like a bear. Others of us project our own coldness onto our pets, buying sweaters and blankets for dogs. But how do animals actually feel about winter? Is it miserable to be an animal? Well, that's the question that veterinarian Bridget Baker set out to answer in a recent piece for theconversation.com. She is deputy director of the Warrior Aquatic Translational and Environmental Research Lab at Wayne State University in Michigan. Bridget, welcome to Living Lab Radio. Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to take a wild guess here and say that actually answering the question of whether or not animals are miserable is kind of beyond our reach. We can't actually get into their heads, right? That's correct. It's extremely difficult, if maybe not impossible, for us to really know subjectively what animals are thinking or feeling. Um, But we can look at some of their physical and physiological adaptations for the cold and give us kind of a hint as to what they might be experiencing. Well, so the first step in responding to or adapting to cold, being cold, is that you have to sense that. And it's completely different whether we're putting our hand in a liquid or sensing the temperature of the air around us. It's different from person to person. What do we know about how animals sense temperature and and cold? Well, it's actually fairly remarkable that in addition to people, most animal species have the same mechanism underlying physiology for sensing temperature. And we have uh, receptors close to the skin that sense hot and cold. And then that sends signals to our central nervous system in the spinal cord and brain. And, and that whole circuitry is actually fairly well-preserved among all vertebrate species. Hmm. And yet we know just between people that sense of feeling cold, of being uncomfortably cold, varies dramatically from person to person. Is it kind of the same across the animal kingdom that, I don't know, 50 or 40 or 30 degrees Fahrenheit is cold, or does it vary between animals as well? Yes, that varies quite a bit between animals. Uh, In fact, there's research that shows that hibernating 
mammals even sense cold at lower temperatures than non-hibernating mammals. Really? Uh, yeah, like a good example is the 13-lined ground squirrel where they've shown that happens. And that's the same for example with cold-blooded or ectothermic animals versus warm-blooded or endothermic animals. The ectothermic animals tend to sense cold at lower temperatures than endothermic animals. That is exactly the opposite of what I would have expected. I would have (laughs) thought that the hibernating animals would be the most sensitive, and for that matter, the cold-blooded animals who can't really regulate their own temperature would be really sensitive to cold. And you're saying it's the exact opposite. Correct, yes. Um, And I, I guess I don't necessarily have a good explanation for that, but I could maybe conjecture that... Um, hibernation is this prolonged state of decreased activity, and that's actually also a risky thing to do because when you're in that decreased state of activity, you're more likely to experience predation or becoming another animal's lunch, for example. Um, And then waking up from that decreased state of activity is also very energetically expensive. Um... So in some ways, it kind of makes sense that hibernating animals would um, want to sense temperatures at a colder level um, so that they don't enter that state unnecessarily or until it's absolutely necessary. It's kind of a a last resort. Correct, yes. And then for cold-blooded animals, you know, they're physiological processes slow down as it gets colder. So again, they would want to prolong the amount of um, time or temperatures at which they can still maintain their physiological processes. Well, Bridget Baker, as a veterinarian, I have to ask, I mean, we do see animals responding even dogs will, uh, you know, pick up their paws when the ground is really cold. They'll shiver when they've been cold outside. And we've seen this industry of blankets and sweaters and booties and all sorts of hats, <laughs> yes. you know, whatever. Do they need that? Well, a lot of times they're showing us that they do, you know, and, and the fact that they're shivering or holding their paws, you know, before they became domesticated, they probably employed something more similar to wild, what wild canids employ, which is this countercurrent heat exchange, in which warm blood from your heart um, passes close to the veins coming from the limbs and the ears um, to reduce heat loss at the periphery, down you know at the, your extremities, while warming up blood that's coming back in towards your core or towards your heart. Um, But as they've become domesticated over time, there's a saying in biology, they use it or lose it. They haven't needed to use it in the same way, so uh, so they can be losing some of these adaptations they had compared to their wild counterparts. So Bridget Baker, one of the things you write about in your piece for theconversation.com beyond this mechanism of keeping warm is some of the other fun and cool adaptations (laughs) that animals have I, I guess I shouldn't say come up with, but that have arisen in the course of evolution for animals that live in the cold. What are some of your favorites? Oh, goodness. Well, can I tell you one of my favorites for staying cool? Sure. <laughs> one of the animals. So, uh, for example, vulture species like the California condor, when they're hot, they'll actually defecate straight onto their feet hmm. in order to increase evaporative cooling. Wow. So... 
That's kind of one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, one of my favorite patterns uh, among like cold versus warm adapted species is that wildlife at more northern latitudes tend to have smaller uh, limbs and appendages than uh, similar species at like more tropical locations. A good example of that would be the Arctic fox, which is kind of a stocky, short-legged, small-eared species compared to like a fennec fox, which is more of a desert species, has longer limbs and really beautifully huge ears. Despite all of these adaptations, whether it's to heat or to cold, animals are still vulnerable to extreme temperatures though, right? They can get frostbite, they can get hypothermia. Oh yes, absolutely. And in fact, um, well, where I live in Michigan, uh, opossums, they uh, have, you know, unfurred tails that are frequent the, their tails are frequent casualties of cold exposure. Hmm. Um, but even in Florida, sometimes we see cold snaps, you know, unusual cold snaps happen in Florida. That's when you start seeing higher mortality levels in manatees or even iguanas starting to fall from trees because of the cold stress and the cold exposure. Here on Cape Cod, each fall and into the winter, we see sea turtles who have not moved back south far enough, fast enough, and end up being cold stunned and, and often wash ashore on our beaches. So that, that same kind of thing where it just uh, suddenly hit a point where they can't handle the cold. That's correct. Yep, that's exactly it. Bridget Baker, what prompted you to write about this topic for theconversation.com? Why, why did you think that, that we should all know a little bit more about how animals cope with winter? Well, I think a lot of people, uh, and it makes sense, look out their window during the winter and think, oh my gosh, that poor animal, should I do something to help it or should I feed it uh, in order to help the animal survive through this cold temperature? Yeah, I mean, should we be helping animals in winter? And if so, how? Yeah, and that's actually, it's a great question. uh, And there's a lot of different factors to consider. Um, For example, in the northern Midwest, a lot of people feed deer. uh, And some of the downfalls of that idea is that bringing a prey species like a deer onto your property can attract predator species as well. So if you have small animals or children around, that's something you have to consider, for example. Um, It also brings a lot of deer into close proximity to each other, which can spread diseases among the deer. You also have to consider if you're feeding them and attracting them to your property in the winter that they're probably also going to come and overgraze your landscaping in the summer. So there are a lot of factors to consider. Generally, what I recommend is create habitat um, that can support animals, even including birds, focus on creating habitat that will keep them safe during the winter uh, rather than feeding them. If you teach somebody to fish, it's better than handing them fish. Exactly. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Give them uh, the cover and the foraging opportunities through landscaping rather than directly feeding them. Um, And then if you do decide to feed birds, be mindful of what you're feeding, why you're feeding. Generally, don't feed birds that have uh, low population status because it can have all sorts of consequences that you're not intending. 
A good example is actually from the Florida scrub jay. Their population status has been vulnerable. And so people started feeding them peanuts, which not only attracts them to interacting with people and relying on people, but then those that would be fed the peanuts because it's such a high nutritional content, they would reproduce earlier And then their offspring would miss the emergence of certain insects they would rely on for food. And so it actually created more of a problem than a benefit. So there's a lot of things to consider when you you start to feed wildlife. Good intentions are not always enough. Correct. (laughs) Bridget Baker is the deputy director of the Warrior Aquatic Translational and Environmental Research Lab at Wayne State University in Michigan. She wrote about animals coping with winter for theconversation.com. Bridget, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Up next, what it means for wine to be dry and how hard it is to measure that. Living Lab Radio continues after a short break. Welcome back to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. If you read the descriptions on a bottle of wine, you might find phrases like hints of cherry or notes of chocolate or herbal aromas. Of course, there are no cherries or chocolate or herbs in most wines. This is just the language that's developed to describe the complex flavors of wines. One of the most basic aspects of a wine's taste is its sweetness or dryness. And like all those other adjectives, dryness is generally determined by highly subjective human tasters. My next guest would like to change that. Aude Waterlow is an assistant professor of enology, that's the science of wine, at Iowa State University, and she's trying to develop a physical or chemical way to measure the dryness of wine. Aude, welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's just start with this word, dry. Why is that the opposite of sweet as opposed to something like bitter or savory? So I think dryness is... Uh, including a lot of different um, things. like So it can be the opposite of sweetness. Usually that's what people tend to use, uh, this type of term. So usually people, when they taste wine, mostly uh, white wine, they try to identify if the wine is sweet or if it's dry. So dry in this case corresponds to the opposite of sweet. So it just means, um, like, for example, a Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc would be considered dry compared to a Riesling that would be sweet. But in fact, dryness is not only sweetness or the opposite of sweetness. It's a little bit more complicated. Right. I mean, if if all it were were just sugar levels, that would seem quite easy to measure chemically. You could just go measure the sugar levels in a wine. So what are some of the other factors that you think are playing into uh, a human taster saying that a wine tastes or, or is perceived as dry? So mostly in red wine, there are compounds responsible for dryness or astringency. Most of the time we talk about astringency, which is uh, the reduction of lubrication in mouth when you drink red wine. So it's similar to when you drink a coffee or if you drink uh, green tea. So in green tea, there is the same compounds responsible for this astringency perception. So it's in this case, it's not based on the, the opposite of sweetness. It's just based on those molecules in red wine that would just uh, dry your mouth. 
That's why you will call the wine dry. So obviously things like sugar and those tannins are things that are naturally found in the grapes. Um, the sugar, of course, through the process of fermentation is turned into alcohol, or at least a, a large portion of it is. What happens to the tannins in the process of fermentation? So the tannins come from the skins of the grapes, and they are extracted during um, maceration of the must and also during fermentation. So at the end, in the wine, you will have the tannins coming from the skins that will be extracted. But during all the winemaking process, there are different steps where those tannins can be removed. So that's why in different type of wine, red wine, you have different concentration of tannin. Just because, for example, during fining, um, of the wine, you use protein to remove all those different particles uh, that you don't want in your finished wine. And so by adding a protein that would interact uh, with the tannin and so precipitate and that would just remove a lot of tannins from um, like during all your process. So in your wine, finished wine, you will have still tannins, but lower amount than what you had in your grapes. So, Odd Waterloo, if you're trying to develop a chemical or physical way to measure dryness, uh, tannins seem like an obvious place to go, maybe sugar as well. So what kinds of things did you try measuring to see if you could get at this you know, very subjective thing that we tend to call dryness? So what we already know and what is commonly used in chemistry to relate the astringency or dryness perception from wine to the perception of people is a method that used the precipitation of tannins with a protein or with a polysaccharide. And that's how we can precipitate and measure the concentration of tannin that we have in the wine. And we know that this precipitation is pretty well related to the astringency perceived by consumers. But in fact, this method, it's a chemical method, but just taking into account the precipitation or like interaction and precipitation with those uh, two large molecules. But in reality, when you drink wine, you don't just swallow the wine. You do movement of your tongue in your mouth, just so it's making some friction between your tongue and palate. Hmm. And so you have friction happening between all your mixture, like saliva and also the wine. And so I try to identify how those friction can modify the astringency perception and how we can relate really what is happening in mouth to what is perceived by people. I never really thought of taking a, a sip of wine as such a complex chemical and physical process. <laughs> so what did you find when it comes to friction and how that relates to the dryness of a wine? So wine is not only tannin. Uh, so as we said at the beginning, it can have sugar that will influence the dryness per perception. Also, the alcohol can modify this dryness sensation. So that's pretty complicated to identify exactly what is going on and how to find the perfect method to measure the astringency perception. 
just because so what we observed by this physical method was the opposite that what we expected so in fact we expected to have um like when the friction so we did friction measurement between two surfaces with saliva and wine to see how the concentration of tannin in the wines was influencing this um, friction measurement and how it can be related to astringency. So when you have a high concentration of tannin in your wine, you're supposed to have a high astringency perception or like high dryness sensation. So when you do friction measurement, we expected to have something that reduced the lubricity. So the more tannin we had in the wine, we expected to have a, um, a friction forces like much higher because mm. it's reducing the lubricity. But we observed the opposite to that. So with the wine that contained a lot, a lot of tannin, we had a lower friction compared to the dryness sensation that was perceived by the consumer. Fascinating. Yeah. So I think it just because there are so many components in the wine, like the wine matrix is really complex. So other components may interfere in these uh, physical parameters. Given how complicated it is at a chemical and physical level, how accurate or consistent are human perceptions of dryness? I mean, if you're comparing this to what humans perceive, are they all over the map? Or do people have a pretty consistent, yep, that's dry, I know that's dry, and I know that's sweet? Uh, so everyone has a different perception of dryness, especially because we don't have the same behavior, like the same culture. We don't drink, we don't eat the same thing, and we don't have the same composition of saliva. Like protein that we have in saliva is different for everyone, like in terms of concentration, in terms of types of proteins. So what do you use in your experiments for saliva? You said you're, you know, using saliva and wine in your friction experiments. Where yeah. does that come from? So I started to use real saliva collected from volunteers, but it's kind of complicated. So you need to use a large pool of saliva just to make sure you're reducing the variation of this type of proteins. Um, but most of the time in chemistry, we use a, a model. So we use a protein that is common in all saliva with like a specific concentration. So we use a model just to try to mimic what we have in real life. Faux saliva. Yeah, it's like faux saliva, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so but back to this question of how consistent are people's perceptions of dryness? Uh, mm -hmm. You were saying that, you know, everybody's saliva is different, everybody's tastes and, and the food and the culture is different. So does where does that leave us with regard to assessing dryness? So when we do sensory experiments, so we use panelists, so we use consumers, but in order to identify exactly how the astringency or dryness perception uh, is for all the consumers that we have in our panel, we train them. So we spend like few hours with them, uh, giving them some standard based on a specific concentration of tannin, and they have to taste it or they have to smell different aromas because aroma can also modify the perception that we have of dryness in wine. 
So we give them standard just to make sure we try to like calibrate them to know uh, to make sure they will be able to identify exactly what we are looking for in the wines. So obviously that's not exactly what happens in real life. Like when everyone drink wine, they are not trained before. <laughs> so yeah, so the perception would be obviously different, but what we try to see is really trying to compare what is the perception. Like for someone that knows wine, especially winemakers, because my work is to help winemakers to improve the wine quality. So we try to um, make sure we will find the way to explain what is astringency to people. So let's say for sweetness, people will perceive different sweetness level based on what they used to drink or what they used to do, to eat. But we can always say, like, if you drink this type of wine, let's say a Cabernet Sauvignon, you expect to have this level of sweetness. Right. So that would be the same with dryness. We know in chemistry, but also with sensory, most of consumers that drink Cabernet Sauvignon, they will perceive a certain level of uh, astringency. So usually consumers is able to know that a Cabernet Sauvignon would be really dry compared to like a white wine or compared to a Pinot Noir. Aud Waterloo is an assistant professor of enology at Iowa State University. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. And that's our show. Until next week, I'm Heather Goldstone. Thanks for listening. Living Lab Radio is produced by WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH in Boston. It's produced by me, Elsa Partan, and Heather Goldstone is executive producer. Theme music by Stellwagen Symphonette.